Well, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We talk about being weary of sinning. Not simply weary of other people's sin, but weary of our own stained heart. And thankfully, 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says this, and I am the worst of them all, or I'm the foremost sinner, or I'm the best at sinning, would be a very loose translation, or I am the chief. Have you ever felt that about yourself? Or does pride get in the way of a broken and a contrite heart by always thinking of others as the worst sinners and therefore we prop ourselves up and find a little bit of self-righteousness? That's part of the essence of sin. It's trying to find our own righteousness, and in doing so, we put others down constantly. We, of all people, we need to make sense of the world we live in so that we can make a difference and add value and show love and offer hope and carry good news and not just survive in it. Alice was completely overwhelmed by Wonderland. Yes, after a very serious intro, we just went down the rabbit hole. (laughs) After following a white rabbit with pink eyes who is checking his time clock, his pocket watch, she goes down into the rabbit hole and takes a very long fall, and she was confused as to where to go. There are a lot of people treating this world like that rabbit hole. So she asks the Cheshire cat, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to walk from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you walk, said the cat. Well, so long as I get somewhere, Alice added. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk long enough. That's how people treat the world they live in. They don't know what kind of world it is. They don't know what kind of creature they are. As was already said this morning, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to care enough to think deeply about truth and meaning and this world because our ideas always lead to practices. And our ideas will always lead us somewhere. For example, if you live by this phrase, you do you, that will lead you somewhere. Or, as Richard Dawkins would say, religion is the root of all evil. There's a kernel of truth in that. But that will lead you somewhere. All ideas lead somewhere. As we go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we are seeking answers to four basic questions. Who am I? Right? What does it mean to be human? It means, at least it means we're not a hamster or a guinea pig. Right? But what does it mean to be human? Who are you? And where are those in our life seeking to find that answer? Last Sunday we talked about what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And that is to reflect Him, to resemble Him, and to represent Him on earth. These first couple chapters in Genesis also answer a second question, where am I? 
What is the nature of the reality that we live in? What sort of world is this? Is it natural only? Or is it also spiritual? Genesis helps us determine also what is wrong, and that's our focus this morning, because as we have interacted through our ministries with Muslims and atheists and Hindus and Buddhists and irreligious, all people realize something is wrong. But not all people have the right answer. This past week, Azerbaijan attacked Armenia, the little enclave that is separated, that has about 150,000 cultural Armenians living within this Muslim-dominated country. They overwhelmed it, and now today many are fleeing back to the main country of Armenia. Something is wrong. Fears of ethnic cleansing are growing, even though the country says that they they want to integrate them into uh, Azerbaijan. Something is wrong. Racism is still rampant. Hate crimes cover the globe. Criminals run free. Justice is not only blind, but seems deaf, mute, and weak. We know this, right? (laughs) What's wrong? There's a hundred kinds of hate, including filicide, infanticide, suicide, homicide, genocide, and at the end, something very unnatural, death. What is wrong with the world? And Christians need to have the answer to that because it's against that dark, black backdrop that shines a light. But if you remove the heinousness or the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and you simply say, well, it's failure or it's imperfection, you have removed that dark black canvas that God intends to put up so that the light of the gospel of His Son can shine. Something is terribly wrong. How do you account for evil? Is it something external? Is it simply social? Is it national? Or is it actually part of who we are? Something inside Something stained. And that brings us to the very important fourth question. Is there any hope? Is what went wrong able to be fixed? Or is life, their life after death or is death simply our only hope? So let's answer that this morning. What went wrong? Because we need to be able to say what went wrong so that we can then provide the remedy. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you have the account of creation. There's not a lot of time given to creation. As a matter of fact, you could have 66 books. That's how many books are in your Bible. You could have 66 books just to explain the amazing events of creation. And you get about two chapters and a couple Psalms and some chapters in Job. Wouldn't it be fascinating to read 66 chapters on just creation? Like, how did Adam come up with all the names of the animals? There are so many questions Genesis doesn't answer. And a matter of fact, a lot of the questions we come to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with aren't the right questions to ask. And we miss the bigger questions because what God wants us to see is this is a prerequisite for understanding redemptive history. God created the world good. He uses that term seven times. And he looked around and he saw that it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good. The last verse of your first chapter, it was very good. 
And in that very good creation, God forms humanity in His image. You'll see that in verses 26 to 29. And that means this, that humanity is beautifully complex. An image or a reflection of God's greatness. Humanity has also been given rule and dominion. He, re- he rules in God's place. He represents God's on the earth. Just as God took chaos and formlessness, remember darkness was over the face of the earth, He filled it. The garden was a blueprint of what Adam and Eve and the succeeding generations were supposed to then do throughout the entire earth. The problem is they fixated on a single tree in the middle of that garden rather than obey God and fill and take chaos and bring it into order. Male and female together express the image of God. And Satan hates the image of God. He will do anything he can to confuse it and to mutilate it and to remove any kind of distinction because it says this, look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God specifically and deliberately with beautiful purpose created you and your children and all the people that you get to interact with during the week a specific gender. And this matters because a loving, wise God is imaged in both male and female. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, this is what he says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Look at this intimate knowledge that God had about Jeremiah and how He created him. And Jeremiah had a specific purpose to image God in his ministry even before he was born. Well, God's redemptive plan is a restorative plan. We'll see more about that next week. But we're moving into a new creation. Perfect creation was good. I actually believe the second creation, the recreation, will be better. I think there'll be things in that new creation that we can't even understand yet because of how we have to try to understand them here in our fallen condition. Look at Genesis 2, verse 7, because Genesis 2, 7 completes verses 127. In chapter 127, it's the nouns. They made man in his image and likeness. But in chapter 2, verse 7, it's the verbs, formed and breathed. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature. Formed expresses the relationship of a craftsman to materials. My dad has taken up um, bowl making. He finds walnut wood and poplar and oak and he forms them. He takes these materials and forms them into beautiful decorative bowls and he sells them at a farmer's market. That's the picture here of God has formed us. He's taken the ground 
And He forms us, but now what sets us apart from the animal kingdom is He does something with the next word, He breathes. It's a very close word. When I, when I started studying out the meaning of that word, I remember I loved holding my children with their back towards me, like I would make a little seat and I put my arm around them, and I would just press my lips down on the back of their head and smell their little baby hair and exhale just a little bit and kiss them. That's the closeness that you get for being in the image of God. And He breathes into man something of Himself. Psalm 94.9 says, He who formed the eye, does He not see? The psalmist says in Psalm 139, I praise You for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from You when I was being made in secret. That's the sanctity of life. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. But your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. I have videos of my dad working at his lathe in the finishing process. He starts to get down to the finer tools. He's very careful, almost motionless. You know God created you with that kind of precision? Yet Isaiah 29.16 explains the sad reality of what is happening throughout the world. Shall what is formed, there's that word again, say to one who formed it, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. And yet isn't that the cry of so many in our humanistic post-postmodern world today? Job 32.8 says, But it is the Spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. There's a beautiful picture in John chapter 20, verse 22. The Holy Spirit is now starting to make an entrance. And Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away because if I don't go away, I won't be able to send another to you. And sort of the Holy Spirit is coming in and doing that work of new birth and recreation. Scripture says in John 20, 22, and when Jesus had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. You see the echoes of new birth and recreation as Jesus Christ the Messiah steps onto the scene and He's creating us. It's what He said in John 3, 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Right here in the first two chapters of Genesis, you can see John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And that gives you purpose in this life and value and direction. Look at chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So mankind is both natural and supernatural. So what went wrong? Because if you stop there, it's beautiful. Well, one of the major implications of being created in the image of God is obedience to our Creator. 
part of being created by God in His likeness, in His image, by nature is being a spiritually dependent being. And you can see that in Genesis 2 and 3. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. That word means delight. Or a garden of delight. God designed this garden for His glory and our delight. He planted it in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. Verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems as though they're near each other at the center of the garden. I love what Derek Kidner writes in his little commentary on on Genesis. He says, The Lord God's provision is a model of parental care. The fledgling is sheltered, but not smothered. On all sides, discoveries and encounters await him to draw out his powers of discernment and choice. And there is ample nourishment for his aesthetic, physical, and spiritual appetites. For his spiritual awakening, since he is made in God's image, he is given a divine word, double-edged to live by. Thou mayest all of these Thou shalt not this one. Part of being made in the image of God is as His creation, we are to obey Him. Look at verse 15. You're going to see this broad permission, one prohibition. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Remember, work exists before sin. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Broad permission. But of the tree, one prohibition, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely what? And that's the problem. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what's wrong with our heart. It's it's really beautiful. We're not really told what this tree is. I do not believe the tree is magical or some blind force or some black magic. It simply represents God's will. You can't eat this one. That's my will. As the Creator, that's my will. As the creation, you have a choice to obey or disobey. And really what it comes down to is sin, part of the essence of sin, is who will you determine is the final authority in your life? God or yourself? Now, turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we will see here sin and its consequences. We've already read the larger section this morning. I will not reread it, but I want you to look at verse 4 of Genesis chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely... what." die for God knows and now he's going to use God's omniscience to accuse him for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open see God's keeping something really good from you and you will be like God knowing good and evil and really what you have here is Satan is getting them to covet omniscience 
which is not the place of the created being. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, by the way, there were many other trees in that garden. There were many other food-producing trees. It's not like all the other trees, you know, hanging on them are like dry breadsticks, and this was the one ribeye tree, right? Or everything else was like dry cornflakes. Oh, no, this is Fruit Loops with whole milk. No, that's not God's intention. They had in abundance all kinds of good food. And God said, all of them are yours, except one. And she saw that it was good for food, but she had food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. She was allowed to look at it. She was allowed to enjoy the aesthetics of that tree. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. There's the hook. She had food. She was allowed to enjoy the beauty of it, but she desired something more. And it was the false promise of what eating was going to give her. She was genuinely deceived, by the way. She was genuinely fooled. Adam sinned in the full light of his conscience. Adam wasn't deceived. And when you go to Romans, it's all about Adam's one sin, not Eve's. And when you go to the New Testament, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Rescuer, Deliverer, comes through the woman, not the man. There's the false promise. Look at verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. I can't imagine what they saw. And they knew that they were naked. And by the way, that's an idiom for... It's not just talking about physical nakedness. It is talking about they were now insecure and their vulnerability was not safe. They knew they had shame. And the darkness of that shame was upon their heart. That dark stain. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we do the same thing, don't we? We sew all kinds of things together to try to make up for that dark stain. And one of the last things we do is run to the cross. Run to Jesus Christ. Sin is independent action from God. 1 John 3, 4 gives this definition. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. Do not eat this tree from this tree. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. Yet, what did Satan, what did the serpent, he's never called Satan in Genesis 3, he's called that later, what did the serpent get Eve to fixate on? All the other trees that were good? All the other beautiful aspects of that garden? The tree of life? No, 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 no. You want to look at this tree. This one that's off limits. You can try this with a child. Right? You can take a really yummy Reese's cup and stack them all around, which is superior to a single jelly bean. And you can put the jelly bean down and you can say you can have all of these except this jelly bean. And all of a sudden, that jelly bean, what in the world? That thing just took on a, a life of itself. Like, I don't want all those Reese's. I want that. Why? There's something in our hearts that is there by the nature of who we are. Satan gets us to bypass every good thing, permissible thing, lovely thing, 
And he takes our focus on the thing that is off limits. And do you know that neither God nor Satan forced them to eat? That was an independent action. They chose to do that even though they had God's Word that clearly said, do not eat from this. I was thinking about this this week. You know, God was the perfect Father. None of us have had a perfect Father or perfect parents, and none of us are perfect parents. He created two perfect people, His children. We certainly weren't perfect children, and we don't have perfect children. But God, the perfect Father, creates two perfect children, and He places them in a perfect environment. They were homeschooled, right? They went to Sunday school. And they still chose what? Was that God's fault? Was that the environment's fault? Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells in me. We can try to create the best environment for our children, and yet somehow evil not only seeps in, but we discover this truth, it is inside their own heart. That's why Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or David said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It is why, Psalm 58.3, the wicked go astray from birth. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, we are by nature children of wrath. They chose to sin. And by the way, the effects of sin did not take long. Yes, on that day they began to die. And do you know what Adam and Eve had to endure? It's not like they just started telling half-truths. Their first child was the first murderer, and their second child was the first one murdered. Look at Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. By the way, that's an idiom for fellowship relationship, closeness. They heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. By the way, they, and I want us to not miss this, they run and hide from the only one who can help. Sin is so heinous and so deceptive and so destructive that they run rather than try to reconcile, rather than own it. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? By the way, he asks Adam questions. He asks Eve a question. He never asks the serpent a question. He does not interact with evil. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God does not tempt anyone. He asks a question. He wanted Adam to own it, to confess it, to take responsibility. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, first time this word is used, I was afraid. Fear. Sin is destructive in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other. And it's very interesting. Don't miss what they did. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. Do you know it seems initially that he's trying to throw Eve under the bus? 
to establish his own righteousness, but actually what he just did was accuse God. You gave me the woman, so it's your fault. Many of you have heard the definition of sin. There are many different terms that that help define and describe what sin is, but one of those is missing the mark. And one man, Greg Gilbert, in his book, The Gospel, he talks about, you know, it's not just that we took the arrow and went to shoot for the bullseye and just missed it by a few inches. What we did is we turned around to the king holding this festival and we took a shot at him. The woman that you gave me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And again, there's a tenderness here and a counseling and trying to draw out truth and responsibility. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She at least told the truth. Both of them played the victim. Adam's accusation was worse. And right away, what you see is what sin did within relationships is they tried to establish their own righteousness. Well, I'm not as bad as her. Well, it was the creature. Well, you are supposed to have dominion over the creation. Since when do you start dialoguing with part of the creation that you're supposed to subjugate? Turn to Genesis 5, because I want us to see this. They started to die, and Genesis 5 is an account of that reality, that the words and the warning were true. Let's just start, begin reading in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. By the way, a real genealogy, a real human being. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he... What's the next word? Genesis 5, 8. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he what? He died. And that pattern repeats itself six more times. And then in verse 27, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. By the way, you may live a very, 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 very long time. But he died too. See, that's the problem. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Paul explains this. He says this in Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through, doesn't say one couple, through one man. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.19, and by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Of course, you have this messianic prophecy where There's going to be the seed from the woman that's going to be in conflict with the seed of the serpent. And there's going to be some, there's going to be an exchange where the head of the serpent is finally crushed. And what the first Adam should have done in the garden when he saw his wife talking to the serpent, I'm not sure he was privy to the conversation or whatever, he should have stomped its head. Of course, that would have been death and that wouldn't have been right. 
But you know, what the, you know what the last Adam is going to do? He's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to take care of what's wrong with the world. And Scripture is clear. And by the way, when we talk about the doctrine of universal sin, or some, some call it original sin, I mean, we are, we are by nature sinners because of Adam, our nature, and because we have chosen to sin too. And this, this brings us all down on level playing field. People aren't more righteous because they play the game of religion better or because they're wealthier or smarter or educated. There is no one who does not sin, 1 Kings 8.46. Psalm 14.3, there is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know what the grand narrative of God's story is from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22? It is a story of promise and a story of hope, of deliverance, of reconciliation, of restoration. The meta-narrative of Scripture is about God being faithful and blessing us even when we have chosen to sin. That is good news. Unbeliever, you need to hear this. Genesis 3.24. Matter of fact, if you're still there, I want you to see this verse. This is in conclusion. God drove out the man, right? They lose this special garden of close communion with God. There's a lot more to the curse that we're not going to address this morning. But He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You cannot live eternally once you have chosen to sin. Not the way God intended you to live forever. And what that picture is showing is that if you're going to now try to reach out to the tree of life, there's a flaming sword that will kill you. You don't get access to that except through death. Because the wages of sin is death. And you know what the good news is? Someone died to give you access to the tree of life. Somebody did die. And it extinguished that flaming sword, and He is the Word, the sharp two-edged sword. There must be a sacrifice for sin that meets God's holy standard. And the resurrection is God saying, I accept this sacrifice. Therefore, we can come boldly to Him. That is why Scripture says Jesus appeared to take away sin. Or John the Baptist, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or why He was named Jesus in the first place. You are to give Him the name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Galatians 3.13, and then I'm going to call the music team forward. Christ redeemed us he purchased us back from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? The day that you eat of it, you will die. But Christ purchased us back from that curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. See, the curse stands. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We preach Christ Jesus and Him crucified because that is the only answer, the only remedy to the problem that we face.
which is death. 